We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Whether you're a world-class athlete or a podcaster like me, we all understand the importance of mental and physical well-being and proper recovery for top-notch performance. That's why I'm excited that Unified Healing is sponsoring this podcast. Unified Healing is a new and super innovative global network of wellness centers powered by Energy Enhancement System, or EE System. If you haven't heard of the EE System, you'll want to listen up. This technology promotes wellness, deep relaxation, purification, and rejuvenation. At hundreds of locations across the globe, access to a center is easy and affordable. Interested in experiencing the EE System technology for yourself? Go to unifiedhealing.com slash bluewire to learn more and find a center near you. That's unifydhealing.com slash bluewire. No material or testimonials on the Unified Healing website are intended to be viewed as medical advice or a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition or treatment and before undertaking a new healthcare regimen, including EE system. What's up, y'all? It's Drewski, and I've teamed up with Mountain Dew to produce a hilarious new basketball podcast called The Dew Zone with Drewski. Learn the backstories of your favorite ballers and celebrities like Jamal Murray. Did you have, like, a favorite team? Was it the Raptors at the time or no? Was the Raptors even started around that time? Come on, bro. I ain't that old, fam. <laughs> You're talking like I'm 50. Taylor Rooks, Asia Wilson, and many more. You won't want to miss this. Listen to The Dew Zone with Drewski on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Episode 67 of the Al Galdi Podcast. It is Thursday, May 20th, 2021. A day on which we find our Capitals now down two games to one in the first round of the Stanley Cup playoffs. A 3-2 double overtime loss at the Boston Bruins on Wednesday night. Why is it? Why? Oh, why? Must things always be this way for the Caps in the postseason? It's remarkable, isn't it? And if you're like me and you've lived in this area your whole life, you've been a Capitals fan your whole life, you know that this is the way that it is, but don't just accept that this is the way that things have to be. Like, why are Caps playoff series never easy, okay? Why is every postseason game for the Caps seemingly an overtime game or at least a one-goal game? You know, this doesn't have to be the case, don't you? Like, it's not like every game 
in the Stanley Cup playoffs is a one-goal game. There were four other Stanley Cup playoff games on Wednesday, okay? Listen to some of these scores. Carolina Hurricanes beat the Nashville Predators 3-0. Winnipeg Jets went at the Edmonton Oilers 4-1. Colorado Avalanche doubled up the St. Louis Blues 6-3. The Calgary Flames ripped the Vancouver Canucks 6-2. Not a single one-goal game there, right? Until you get to what happened in Boston. Capitals losing 3-2 and not one overtime, but two overtimes. That's the final. Caps now have gone from being up 1-0 in the series to now down 2-1. Every game has to be a nail-biter. Every game has to give you an ulcer. And Wednesday night's game, incredibly no different. I will give you my thoughts on my analysis of Caps-Bruins game three. That's coming up momentarily. Special guest on the show, Dolphins insider Josh Tolentino of the Athletic Miami. He's going to give us the Miami perspective on the three prominent former Dolphins who the Washington football team has acquired this offseason. Ryan Fitzpatrick, Eric Flowers, and now Bobby McCain. Especially in the cases of Flowers and McCain, why did the Dolphins part ways with those guys this offseason? What went wrong for those guys in Miami? And what now does Washington have in those guys? In addition to, of course, Ryan Fitzmagic, Also, there's a new theme to the Washington football team's offseason. That theme, now clear of something that Washington did on Wednesday. I'll talk about that coming up. The Wizards. Is their season going to end on Thursday night? Wizards host the Indiana Pacers at Capital One Arena in the play-in tournament. The winner gets the eighth seed in the Eastern Conference playoffs. The loser, well, that team season is over. This is a big game for the Wizards and a big game beyond just the obvious reason of the game potentially being the final game of the Wizards season. I'll preview the game coming up. A wild win for the Nationals at the Chicago Cubs on Wednesday night. Great to see the Nats win, but man, what a day. A wild Wednesday for the Nats. We have a new COVID situation. We had a mammoth homer by Juan Soto. We had a second consecutive short outing for Max Scherzer. We had another base running controversy involving Trey Turner. We had an injury for Victor Robles. We had another shaky outing for Brad Hand. That's a lot to get into, but get into it all, we shall. In addition to talking some Orioles, another loss for them, the Tampa Bay Rays, uh, despite John Means starting and despite a big game for Trey Mancini. You can email me, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. You can tweet me too, at Al Galdi. Email from Billy D in North Carolina off our extensive Morgan Moses conversation on Wednesday's podcast. Of course, the report's coming out on Tuesday of the Washington football team having given Morgan Moses permission to seek a trade. Uh, writes Billy, so what do you think Moses' value is in a trade? I would think at least a third round pick. Maybe they can include him in the Aaron Rodgers trade package. Uh, Billy, I love you, man. Uh, that would be lovely. If Washington could include Morgan Moses as part of a deal to procure A-Rod from the Green Bay Packers. Unfortunately, I do not see that happening. The Packers are nuts if they trade Aaron Rodgers. They need to make things right with Aaron Rodgers. Even though, yes, he can be a diva. I am totally aware uh, of that. I would love for Washington to trade for Aaron Rodgers. I just don't think that that's happening. And Morgan Moses would not be a big part of that happening. Not that you said that he would be. Uh, but you raise a good question though, right? Like what is Morgan Moses's trade value? Assessing trade value in the NFL is so hard. Trade values are seemingly random in the NFL and precedent doesn't mean nearly as much as circumstance. You know, like you think about our team, the Washington football team, Washington for Trent Williams got a 2020 fifth round pick and a 2021 third round pick. Why? Circumstance. 
right? Like whenever you think about Trent, he's worth more than a three and a five, but the circumstance was such that that was all that Washington could get for Trent at the point at which he was traded, which was, remember, day three of the 2020 NFL draft. Thank you, Brucifer. We're winning off the field. Yes, exactly. Uh, you know, Morgan Moses, I mean, he's not that old. He's going into just his age 30 season. He hasn't missed a game over the last six seasons. He's coming off maybe his best season. And yet, because we're now deep into the offseason and most offensive tackle needy teams have addressed those needs, I don't expect Washington to get a lot for Moses if Washington gets anything for him. You know, I'm not convinced that someone is going to want to trade for Morgan Moses. We'll see. But I would be thrilled if Washington got a fourth round pick for Moses. Like, is he worth more than a fourth round pick? Yes, he is. If you look at his body of work, that commands much more than a fourth round pick. But given where we're at in the offseason, I mean, free agency is mostly done. The draft is done. Again, most offensive tackle needy teams have addressed those needs. I just don't see Washington being able to command a lot for Morgan Moses. And keep this in mind too, the Chicago Bears couldn't trade Charles Leno Jr. and ended up releasing him right? Washington didn't trade for Charles Leno Jr. Washington just signed Charles Leno Jr. on the cheap. You know, Bobby McCain, the Miami Dolphins didn't trade away Bobby McCain. The Dolphins released Bobby McCain and Washington just signed him on the cheap. So if those guys didn't have trade markets, why should we be convinced that Morgan Moses will? You know, and Leno is a left tackle. Moses is a right tackle. Leno, like Moses, doesn't miss games. And yet Leno could not be traded. Uh, the Bears couldn't trade Leno. Why should we be so sold on the notion of Washington trading Moses? I hope Washington can trade Moses. I hope Washington can get, say, a fourth round pick. I'd be thrilled with a fourth round pick, but uh, I'm not convinced that that's going to happen. Tweet from Random Tandem. We know you've appointed Mike Rizzo to black belt ninja status. With all these stealth moves, has Ron Rivera earned his brown belt yet? Uh, I like that question. Uh, I have appointed Mike Rizzo as the ninja. That's been my nickname for Mike Rizzo for years. The ninja. Ninja strike. Yes, there it is. The sound of the ninja striking. Uh, you know, Ron isn't so much a ninja as he is the godfather. He is a Don. He is, as I like to call him, Don Ron. But here's the thing. We got to see how all of this Don Ron stuff works out before we crown Ron. You know, Rizzo has led the Nats to five playoff appearances, four National League East titles, and a World Series championship. Ron won the NFC East at 7-9, and nine, albeit in his first season. Very nice start to Ron's tenure as Washington's head coach, but let's see where things go. Much more on the Washington football team in a bit. But first, yes, another loss for the Capitals to Boston. You know, Caps-Bruins Game 3 had a 6.30 start. I know for a lot of people, that was a good thing. You're like, hey, game will be over by 9 o'clock or so, you know, and go to bed relatively early off the late night we all had as DC sports fans on Tuesday night with Wizards Celtics not tipping off until after 9 o'clock. Uh, yeah, so much for going to bed early if you go to bed. Uh, some of us have to stay up all night recording podcasts. And so much for going to bed without any stress in your system as a Washington, D.C. sports fan. A 3-2 double overtime loss for the Capitals at the Boston Bruins on Wednesday night in Game 3 of the first round Stanley Cup playoff series. Caps now down in the series, two games to one. Another close game between the Caps and the Bruins in the postseason. This is remarkable. This game on Wednesday night was the 12th consecutive one-goal game between the Caps and the Bruins in the Stanley Cup playoffs. That's an NHL record. 12 consecutive one-goal games 
between these two teams when they meet in the postseason. It's just remarkable. And yet, if you're a Caps fan, like I talked about in the opening segment of the show, you're not surprised by a stat like that. The Caps, all they do is play one goal and overtime games in the Stanley Cup playoffs. So the good news with this game was that both Evgeny Kuznetsov and Ilya Samsonov were back. The bad news, though, from an injury-slash-availability standpoint was that Lars Eller was out. So with Kuznetsov and Samsonov, each guy had missed the Caps' previous seven games. Each did not play in the first game of that stretch due to team disciplinary reasons as the players were late to a team function, and then each guy was out due to COVID-19 protocols. Well, finally, both guys were back for game three. Kuznetsov skated for 26 minutes, 41 seconds. He had no points, just one shot on goal and just two total shot attempts, but he also was fourth on the caps in five on five shot attempt percentage per natural stat trick at 55, 22 shot attempts for 18 shot attempts again. So there was some good stuff, I thought, from Kuznetsov in game three. Samsonov was the cap starting goaltender. He became the cap's third different starting goaltender over the first three games of the series. That almost never happens in the Stanley Cup playoffs. A team starting three different goaltenders over the first three games. We'll get to Sam Sonoff's night coming up momentarily. But Eller did not play. And this is not a shocker because it didn't feel like Eller was going to play. But Lars Eller out for game three due to that lower body injury that was suffered in game two. And so head coach Peter Laviolette had a new look lineup for game three. Top line of Alex Ovechkin, Evgeny Kuznetsov, and TJ Oshie. Second line of Anthony Mantha, Nicholas Backstrom, and Tom Wilson. Third line of Connor Sheary, Michael Roffel, and Daniel Carr. Daniel Sprung was a healthy scratch. So it was one Daniel replacing another. And then the fourth line remained the same as it has throughout the season. Carl Hagelin nicked out and Garnet Hathaway. Defense pairings remain the same. Dimitri Orloff and John Carlson as a top pairing. Brendan Dillon and Justin Schultz as the second pairing. Uh, you'll see why I emphasize the name Justin Schultz coming up in just a bit, as if you don't know already. And then the third defense pair is Adano Chara and Nick Jensen. The Caps lost the puck possession battle for a second consecutive game. This was a huge reason for the Capitals' loss in Game 2. It was a reason, although not necessarily the reason for the Capitals' loss in Game 3. Caps for natural statric in Game 3, 55 5-on-5 shot attempts to the Bruins' 63, including seven high-danger 5-on-5 shot attempts to the Bruins' 8. So it's not like the Caps got walloped in the puck possession battle, as was the case in Game 2, but the Caps did lose it. Minus 8 were the Capitals in the 5-on-5 shot attempt battle per natural stat trick. And here's where the 5-on-5 shot attempt stuff really stands out. So go look at the numbers for the first overtime. You know, Caps lost in double overtime, yes, on a flukish occurrence we'll get to, but the Caps were lucky that the game didn't end in the first overtime. The Caps in that first overtime per natural stat trick had just 12 5-on-5 shot attempts to the Bruins' 25. I mean, in a super key period like that, the Caps got more than doubled up in the puck possession battle, and the Caps in the first overtime had a mere five shots on goal to the Bruins' 17. I mean, how about that? The Bruins in the first overtime had more than three times as many shots on goal as the Caps had. So again, Caps are lucky the game didn't end in overtime number one. Ended up, of course, ending in overtime number two. And going back to the absence of Eller, you know, I brought this up the other day. Eller being out isn't just a bad thing from a standpoint of a top three center being out for the Capitals. It's also bad from a defensive standpoint because Eller's line with Connor Sheary and Michael Roffel 
had been tasked with checking the Bruins' top line, the perfection line of David Pasternak, Patrice Bergeron, and Brad Marchand. Well, the perfection line put up some big numbers in Game 2, and the perfection line continued to do well in Game 3. Eller, of course, injured in Game 2, out for all of Game 3. The perfection line in Game 3 per natural stat trick, over 15 minutes, 36 seconds of 5-on-5 play, had a shot attempt percentage of 71.05, 27 shot attempts for 11 shot attempts against. When the perfection line was on the ice in five-on-five play in game three, the Boston Bruins had by far the bulk of the shot attempts. 27-4, 11 against. Pasternak finished the game with a game high nine shots on goal. Bergeron finished the game with seven shots on goal. So Eller being out contributed to the Capitals once again losing the puck possession battle, especially in some key ways, right? Again, Bruins dominating puck possession in the first overtime and the perfection line of Pasternak, Bergeron, and Marchand, for the most part, having its way when it came to the puck possession battle. And so that brings us to Ilya Samsonov. And let me start by saying this with our breakdown of Samsonov here. He was terrific for most of the game, okay? I mean, especially considering the guy had not played in a game since May 1st, had been out due to the COVID-19 stuff. The fact that he stepped into this spot and did as well as he did, I give him a lot of credit. He stopped 40 of the 43 shots on goal that he faced. Now, to me, it is very disappointing that he had to face 43 shots on goal. I said this is one of my keys going into game three. You got to do a better job in the puck possession department. The Caps were better, but not better enough. I mean, Craig Anderson had to face 48 shots on goal in game two. Samsonov has to face 43 shots on goal in game three. Samsonov, per natural stat trick, stopped five of the six high danger shots on goal that he faced, 20 of the 21 medium danger shots on goal that he faced, and 12 of the 13 low danger shots on goal that he faced. But Samsonov, to me, for so much of this game, was the Caps MVP. I mean, Samsonov stopped 20 of the 21 shots on goal that he faced over the first two periods. He stopped all 17 of the shots on goal that he faced in that first overtime. Like, yes, the Bruins bombarded the Capitals when it came to shot attempts in the first overtime, but Samsonov was up to the task. Again, he stopped all 17 of the shots on goal that he faced in the first overtime. And then came the second overtime, the game-winning goal, an absolute killer, a Craig Smith game-winning even-strength goal, 548 into the second overtime, a goal that was a result of miscommunication. If you're a DC sports fan, you are well aware of miscommunication, especially if you're a Washington football team fan. We have seen miscommunication in Washington football team secondaries for years, although we thankfully didn't see much of that in the 2020 season. But go back to the days of Josh Norman and Monte Nicholson and Quentin Dunbar and all kinds of fingers being pointed. Oh, I thought you had him. No, I thought you had him. Well, I thought you were supposed to cover that guy. No, I thought you were supposed to cover that guy. Well, you had something similar in this game-winning goal that was scored on Wednesday night. Samsonov, again, had not played in a game since May 1st. And I do wonder if this miscommunication was a result, at least in part, of that. I mean, I don't know that we'll ever know the answer to something like that, but you do have to wonder about that. So off Samsonov briefly playing a puck behind the net, but then going back to the crease, defenseman Justin Schultz is hesitant to get to the puck. Craig Smith, who's skating with Schultz, is not hesitant to get to the puck. And Craig Smith scores a stunning and out of nowhere wraparound goal, stuffs the puck behind Samsonov, and that's it. Game over, series tied no more, Bruins go up 2-1 in the best of seven. That's it. A game that went on forever, 
a game that featured so many great moments from a capital standpoint, so many wonderful saves from Samsonov. That's how the game ends. Ilya is back there playing with the puck. He says, all right, well, Schultz is coming in, so I'm going to go back to the crease. Schultz, I guess, didn't know what Samsonov was doing or had a moment of hesitation or whatever. Craig Smith did not hesitate. Craig Smith got to the puck and just like that was able to score on the wraparound goal. For those of you who used to play NHLPA Hockey 93 back in the day on Sega Genesis, the wraparound goal was unstoppable. The wraparound goal could not be stopped in NHLPA hockey for Sega Genesis. That's what that reminded me of, watching that goal by Craig Smith. You know, I felt like I was playing with Luke Robitaille of the Los Angeles Kings or something like that with that wraparound goal, the way that that thing scored. And that was it. The game was over and the Capitals had lost. An awful way for the Capitals to lose that game on Wednesday night. A brutal miscommunication between Samsonov and Schultz. I don't know who you blame. Again, I don't know that we ever find out necessarily who deserves the ultimate blame for that, but that is something that can happen, and yet it did, and it cost the Caps big time. Uh, it was good to see Alex Ovechkin score a goal on Wednesday night. Ovi had a second period power play goal, a team high time, four shots on goal, a team high nine total shots and four hits. Andy was six on the caps and five on five shot attempt percentage per natural stat trick at 51.43. I think Ovechkin's had a good series so far. I thought he was particularly good in game one and then good again in game three. Uh, did commit an interference penalty, Ovi did, 220 into the first period on Wednesday night. But Ovechkin coming through on the power play, 821 into the second period to give the caps a one nothing lead, although the goal was thanks to a great takeaway by Anthony Mantha. Uh, Mantha was awesome here. Gets the puck near the boards behind the net and then finds Ovi, who had come charging into the low slot for a snapshot that beats the Bruins goaltender, Tuka Rask. So great job by Mantha. Great job by Ovechkin. The goal makes Ovechkin just the sixth player in NHL history with at least 800 combined regular season and postseason goals. Yes, that was the 800th career goal for Ovechkin, if you're looking at both the regular season and the postseason. Nick Dowd scored the Caps' other goal. Uh, mixed game, I thought, for Dowd. So he has a second-period even-strand goal. That's good. He has a team-high tying seven hits. That's good. He goes 14-9 and nine on face-offs. That's good. Thankfully, TJ Oshie was not on face-offs on Wednesday night, off him having gone 2-17 and 17 on face-offs over games one and two. Although, in fairness to Oshie, he's not a center. He shouldn't be taking face-offs. He's a right winger, and he was back at that spot for game three. But, you know, Dowd with the goal, Dowd with the hits, Dowd with the face-offs wins. But also for Dowd, he was dead last on the Caps in five-on-five shot attempt percentage per natural stat trick at 33.33, just nine shot attempts for, 18 shot attempts against for the Caps in situations with Nick Dowd on the ice in five-on-five circumstances in game three. And Nick Dowd committed a costly penalty, third period high-sticking penalty that led to the Brad Marchand power play goal, 11.32 into the third period to tie the game at two. Marchand all by his lonesome, right next to the right post, and scoring that goal. As for Dowd's goal, even strength goal coming 18-15 into the second period, giving the Caps a 2-1 lead. The goal thanks to a great offensive zone takeaway by Garnett Hathaway. Sent a terrific pass from the right circle to Dowd in the low slot for a tip-in goal. So each Capitals goal on Wednesday night, the result of a good-looking takeaway. The Ovechkin power play goal thanks to the Anthony Mantha takeaway. The Nick Dowd even strength goal thanks to the Garnett Hathaway takeaway. Game three, uh, much like game one in this series, very physical, you know, and this is to be expected between these two teams in this series. Caps in game three, 57 hits 
the Bruins had 60. So how about that? 117 combined hits between the two teams on Wednesday night. Garnett Hathaway and Nick Dowd each had a team high tying seven hits for the Caps. Tom Wilson had six hits. You may recall game one Caps in that game, 51 hits to the Bruins, 41. So we thought that was a lot. 92 total hits in game one, 117 total hits in game three. Uh, game three, like game two, featured a good number of penalties called, especially in the first period. That was a tough watch, that first period. All of those whistles. Each team for the game ends up committing five minors. Each team for the game ends up going one for five on the power play. But 10 total minors in the game, six of the 10 minors called in the first period. Caps and Bruins combined for 14 minors in game two. So th- this officiating in the series has been pretty clear so far, which is penalties will be called And penalties can be costly, as we saw on Wednesday night with, again, the Nick Dowd penalty resulting in a Marshawn game-tying goal in the third period. Look, series is not over, clearly, okay? Uh, I still think this is going to be a seven-game series, and my prediction is holding up every game in the series being a one-goal game. I don't know why this is, and yet it is. When the Caps and Bruins play in the postseason, it's nothing but close games. And for the Capitals, period, in the postseason, it feels like we're looking at nothing but close games. Game four, Friday night at Boston, 6.30 start. It's good to have Kuznetsov and Samsonov back. I did like so much of what we saw from Samsonov in the game on Wednesday night, but the miscommunication with Schultz looms large. In another instance, by the way, of a defenseman playing a role in a costly goal that is given up by the Caps in this series. Game two, the game winner, Brad Marchand, even strength goal, 39 seconds into overtime, the sequence beginning thanks to a brutal giveaway by defenseman Brendan Dillon. The Bruins' second goal in game two, the Patrice Bergeron, even strength goal, 921 into the first period. The Bruins' possession coming off an attempted defensive zone clear by defenseman Dimitri Orloff being deflected back into the Caps defensive zone. You had a bunch of penalties committed by Capitals defensemen in game one, which was a win, yes, but in that game three of the Caps four minors called were by Capitals defensemen. The Caps defensemen have got to be better here. Got to stop with the boo-boos because especially these last two games, the boo-boos loom large. All right, before we get to our special guest, Dolphins insider Josh Tolentino of the Athletic Miami to talk Bobby McCain, Eric Flowers, and Ryan Fitzpatrick, we did have some news from the Washington football team on Wednesday. Washington released linebacker Josh Harvey Clemens and signed unrestricted free agent linebacker Joe Walker. Uh, Josh Harvey Clemens is a name that I would have asked about actually a decent amount. His is a name that would come up, even though he like barely played for Washington during his time with the team. Uh, he is on the team no more. Uh, Harvey Clemens spent the entire 2020 season on the reserve slash opt-out list due to the COVID-19 pandemic. He, in a piece by Washington football team insider Rhiannon Walker of the Athletic DC that came out last August, said that his decision to opt out was because he and both of his sons have asthma. Said, quote, I have to take this serious, end quote. Now, what's interesting is the other Washington football team player, who opted out of last season due to the pandemic. Defensive tackle Caleb Brantley, he too has been released this offseason. Washington released Brantley back on April 9th. And I bring this up because, and you may recall this, Jack Del Rio in an interview with the Athletic DC's other Washington football team insider, our guy Ben Standig, member had some really interesting and notable comments last August when he said regarding NFL players opting out, like Harvey Clemens and Brantley, quote, I have personal views that would probably not sit well with my professional occupation right now. 
I think I'll just leave it like that, <laughs> end quote. So I don't know if Jack was ticked off at these guys for opting out. Maybe them opting out had nothing to do with these guys getting released, but uh, I, I, I did think about that when uh, the Harvey Clemens news uh, came out there on Wednesday. Anyway, Washington took Harvey Clemens in the seventh round of the 2017 draft out of Louisville. He played in 35 regular season games over his first three seasons with Washington, 2017 through 2019, mostly on special teams. Ah, speaking of special teams. So Joe Walker is going into his age 29 season. He was taken by the Philadelphia Eagles in the seventh round of the 2016 draft out of Oregon. He comes to Washington having spent time with the Eagles, Arizona Cardinals, and San Francisco 49ers. Walker in the 2019 season for the Cardinals played in 16 regular season games with 11 starts. So he has experience actually playing linebacker at the NFL level. But here to me is a takeaway with Joe Walker. He in the 2020 regular season led the 49ers in special team snaps. He played on 60.62% of the Niners special team snaps. Now what's relevant about the 49ers for our purposes Martin Mayhew, right? The 2020 season was part of Martin Mayhew's tenure as Niners Vice President of Player Personnel. Mayhew was with the 49ers for four seasons. The first two, 2017 and 2018, he was a senior personnel executive for the Niners. Mayhew then got promoted to Vice President of Player Personnel in January 2019. So Joe Walker, number one on the 2020 49ers in special team snaps. And this continues a trend of the Washington football team emphasizing special teams this offseason, especially at the linebacker position. Think back to another addition at linebacker for Washington in free agency this offseason. David Mayo, the Washington football team on March 18th, just the second day of the NFL's new league year, announced the signing of unrestricted free agent linebacker David Mayo. He's going into his age 28 season. He has played for, you guessed it, the Carolina Panthers, who took him in the fifth round of the 2015 draft out of Texas State. Mayo played for the Panthers from 2015 through 2018 as mostly a special teams player. And he, in fact, led the Panthers in special team snaps in 2016 and 2017 and was number two on the Panthers in special team snaps in 2018. Now, he has done other things. In fact, Mayo in 2019 for the New York Giants played in all 16 games, including 13 starts. So like Joe Walker, David Mayo does have a background of at least playing some on defense for a team in a season. And actually, Mayo in 2019 for Pro Football Focus had a run defense grade of 90.1, which is really good. Uh, He did have a coverage grade that season of just 48.8 for PFF. Mayo also, by the way, has a connection to the 49ers, signed a two-year contract with the Niners in March 2019, but was released by the Niners in their cut down to 53 for the 2019 season. But again, David Mayo, special teams ace, just like Joe Walker, just like Jared Norris. Here's another linebacker who's come up this offseason. Washington on March 23rd announced the re-signing of unrestricted free agent linebacker and special teams ace Jared Norris. He's going into his age 28 season. Washington originally signed Norris as an unrestricted free agent on February 13th, 2020. Think about that. Jared Norris was actually one of the first acquisitions for Washington under Ron Rivera. Now, we should note this. Norris was waived in Washington's cut down to 53 for the 2020 season, but he then was signed to the practice squad the next day. He, in the 2020 regular season for Washington, played in 11 games, but on just seven defensive snaps as compared to 42.01% 
of Washington's special team snaps. Again, special teams ace. Norris came to Washington having played for, wait for it, yes, the Carolina Panthers. Norris, prior to the 2020 season, had spent his only three NFL seasons, 2016 through 2018, with Ron Rivera and the Panthers, who signed Norris as an undrafted free agent out of Utah in May 2016. Norris played in 28 games for the Panthers from 2016 through 2018, but did not play on a single defensive snap. Every regular season snap of Norris's career from 2016 through 2018 with the Panthers was a special teams snap. Norris did not play in the 2019 season. He suffered a season-ending toe injury in practice in October 2018, was waived by the Panthers in their cut down to 53, August 31st, 2019. But as you see here, right, Joe Walker, David Mayo, Jared Norris, three linebackers, but three special teams aces. A real emphasis by Washington on special teams when it comes to some of these linebackers who've been brought on board or been re-signed this offseason. And it's not just at linebacker. Washington on March 23rd announced the re-signing of unrestricted free agent corner Danny Johnson. He's going into his age 26 season. He was, of course, Washington's primary kickoff returner this past season for a second time in three seasons. But note this, Danny Johnson in the 2020 regular season, 14 games, did not play on a single defensive snap. All Danny Johnson did last regular season was play on special teams, and yet Washington on March 23rd saw fit to resign Danny Johnson. Again, special teams. How about the draft? Washington in the 2021 draft, right, made that trade with the Philadelphia Eagles and included Washington getting a six-round pick that was used on, yes, a long snapper, Cameron Cheeseman of Michigan. Now, as you likely know, I did not agree with that. I think you should basically never spend a draft pick on a special team specialist, but that is a part of this emphasis on special teams. Washington's fifth round pick in the 2021 draft, the Cincinnati safety, Derek Forrest, athletic freak, already being viewed as a potential slash likely major special teams contributor for Washington. You get the idea. There are many themes to the Washington football team's offseason at this point. One is the Ron Rivera baptism of fire, which I've been chronicling for months. Another is the roster getting more athletic. Another is developing extreme depth on the roster, especially at a position group like offensive line. Another theme is, yes, position flex. Position flex. Yes, thank you, Ron. And I do believe that we now can add another theme to the Washington football team's offseason, and that theme is loading up on special teams demons. You're not going to get a lot on the Joe Walker signing elsewhere. I promise you that. Just know that on this podcast, we pay attention to these things. And I wanted to share that with you because this trend of acquiring special teams aces has become hard to ignore. Position flex. Yes, and position flex too. Thank you, Ron. You know, someone who offers position flex in the way that he practices medicine is one of the great supporters of the Al Galdi podcast, Dr. Matthew Mintz. And if it's been a while since you've seen a doctor, you know, if your wife or your girlfriend or both are in the process of nagging you to see a doctor, yeah, you know that you probably should go to see a doctor, but who wants to go to see a doctor these days? Long waits and waiting rooms, unsatisfactory appointments, impossible to get a call back if you have a question. Here's your solution, Dr. Matthew Mintz. Dr. Mintz is an internal medicine and primary care physician whose concierge membership practice allows for old-fashioned personalized care in which every patient is a person, not a number. Dr. Mintz offers next day, even same-day appointments, longer appointment times, 24-7 after-hours access. And how about this, lab work that's done 
in the office. So you don't have to go on some 30-minute drive to get your blood drawn. Also, unlike most other concierge practices, Dr. Matthew Mintz can generate invoices for patients that can be submitted for reimbursement from most insurances. His office is located in Bethesda, the Wildwood Medical Center across the street from Balducci's. Dr. Matthew Mintz is a big Washington football team fan. He's a loyal listener of this podcast. And some of you listening may have been with Potomac Physicians and now aren't sure what to do with them closing and reopening as two distinct non-insurance-only practices. Why not give Dr. Matthew Mintz a call? In fact, he offers a free meet-and-greet in person or virtual so you can see if his practice is right for you. Call his office. Tell his office that you want what you heard about on the Al Galdi podcast, the free meet and greet. The phone number is 855-646-8963. That's 855-646-8963. Or you can check out Dr. Mintz online at drmintz.com. That's D-R-M-I-N-T-Z.com, drmintz.com. Dr. Matthew Mintz, an internal medicine and primary care physician who provides medical care the way you like it, the way it used to be, and the way it should be. And tell him Al Galdi sent you. And now time for our special guest. Well, it's well known the extent to which the Washington football team has brought in former Carolina Panthers players, coaches, and executives since Ron Rivera was hired. But a theme this offseason, for whatever reason, has been bringing in former Miami Dolphins players. First Ryan Fitzpatrick, then Eric Flowers. Now Bobby McCain, Fitzpatrick and McCain were Dolphins captains last season. So Washington is two of the Dolphins' 2020 captains. Here to tell us about these guys from a Dolphins perspective is Dolphins insider Josh Tolentino of the Athletic Miami. Josh, it's great to have you on, man. How are you? Al, it's a pleasure. Like what you, you mentioned, it's, it's, it's been a funny route for some of these Dolphins who are on their way out, uh, heading up to Landover, Maryland. I mean, you look at Ryan Fitzpatrick's situation. Obviously, he showed last year that he could still play. The other two are the, the other two are interesting guys. Eric Flowers, obviously, a lot of familiarity with Washington, and then Bobby McCain. Uh, you know, obviously, Washington was looking for a deep safety. Bobby McCain perfectly fits that role. Uh, in regards to his production, there's a lot to be discussed there, and what you want to value, but. Uh, definitely unique routes for these three guys that you mentioned. Yeah, so let's start with Washington's latest Dolphins acquisition, Bobby McCain. He was released by Miami on May 6th. Why? You know, you just look at what Bobby has done for this defense. I think that's the biggest thing. You know, he was drafted six years ago as a true nickel cornerback. That's the position he played for several years until, guess what? Brian Flores gets to town. Brian Flores, he loves being multiple in his defensive scheme, not just in fronts and not just with the scheme, but also in positional versatility. He asked Bobby, one of the first things that he did when uh, Flores got to town was ask Bobby McCain to switch to deep safety, being able to replace uh, Mika Fitzpatrick. And, you know, Bobby was a very willing, I think uh, is a good word to describe. He's a very willing candidate to fill that role. And, and that's what he did the past two seasons. And, but the biggest thing that the Dolphins were missing from that backside on the defense were pass deflections and interceptions. And you look at, you know, just some of the peers across the league, like the Justin Simmons of, of the league and, you know, these playmakers. That's not Bobby. Bobby is a defensive communicator. You know, he's going to do a decent job in pass coverage, but he's not going to cause much inter- interruption in regards to forcing turnovers, literally snatching the ball out of the air. Um, so I think they wanted to upgrade on that side, and, and the Dolphins think they found one in Javon Holland from Oregon, who opted out of last season, but uh, 
Prior to that, he had nine interceptions in two years with Oregon. He's another versatile player who can play nickel, play safety, uh, really move all over the box and all over the field. So um, in McCain's case, he just happened to be the odd man out. And um, But I think Washington will like him. Obviously, like what we discussed earlier, they needed deep safety. Bobby's been filling that role. And not just that, who knows if Washington asked him to, to slot into nickel cornerback. I know there, there's definitely some guys already there, but He's got versatility, but I think the the biggest thing that you'll expect out of him is he was a team captain these past two years, and um, that leadership quality he's going to bring right away, I think that will be felt there up in Washington. Yeah, I mean, looking at the Dolphins last season, number one in the NFL in third down defense, number six in the NFL in pass defense per DVOA. McCain was second on the Dolphins in defensive snaps. So, I mean, it's accurate to say he played a sizable role on a defense that, at least against the pass, was quite good. Yeah, and I remember vividly there was a play against the Chiefs, and Bobby, you mentioned he was second in snaps. He was on, you know, he was on the field almost literally all the time. However, he did have a tweak. Um, the Kansas City Chiefs, they were in Miami towards the end of the season in December. Uh, just for one play, he literally tweaked something, needed a breather. Um, in comes the backup safety, Clayton Fedulam. <laughs> Man, Patrick Mahomes saw Bobby McCain was off the field. He, they attacked Fedulam. Uh, Tyreek Hill absolutely burned him. If Bobby's in there, you know, he's not picking that ball off, but he's at least playing good coverage on Tyreek on the back end. Um, and I think that's what he brings. He brings consistency. You know he's going to be on the field. Um, it's just, you know, what do you value more, interceptions or leadership and uh, durability? Because that's what Bobby brings. You mentioned Bobby having played both free safety and nickel corner for the Dolphins. Which spot was his best spot? It's tough to gauge. I think, obviously, he came up playing nickel cornerback. I mean, that's what he, he was used to. Um, and really, one of my questions to him last September, um, I remember um, a few games in, I asked him on, on one of these Zooms, Bobby, you've been playing safety now for two years. How comfortable are you? And basically, how he worded his response was that, I don't think I'll ever be entirely comfortable, um, which is kind of an acknowledgement that, you know, this is something that he's never been used to. To doing, I mean, he, he just basically was a very willing candidate to do it. If he wanted to roll on the team, this is what the team asked him to do. Um, and, and to his credit, it's not like just because he's not getting interceptions. I mean, he's still a very viable candidate to to be consistently reliable back there. You know, you know I'm looking at the numbers right now. In 503 coverage snaps last year, uh, he was second in the league to Mike Edwards from Tampa uh, with a 27.5 passer rating. So, I mean... He's, he's going to be a consistent guy down there. He's just not the interception guy that, that you know, if you want five, six picks, uh, you know, on the back end, he won't give that to you. But, again, leadership and durability. I think Bob, Bobby McCain brings it on that end. We're talking Washington football team players who just came over from the Dolphins with Dolphins insider Josh Tolentino of the Athletic Miami. You can follow him on Twitter at JCT Sports. So Eric Flowers, uh, he's reborn with Washington as a left guard in 2019, signs a big money contract with the Dolphins in the 2020 offseason, and then just a year later is traded to Washington for basically nothing, and the Dolphins pick up a decent chunk of the money owed to Flowers for the 2021 season. What went wrong for Eric Flowers with Miami? Yeah, a three-year, $30 million deal, and you basically only get one year of service. And not just that, I mean, he was hurt for a little bit. Um, and to be honest with you, Al, I know he revived his career, sort of. I think that's fair to say in Washington. That's how he earned that $30 million three-year deal uh, for Miami to be able to give him. But he didn't show much in, in you know when he was actually in there. I mean, I think 
this and, and this kind of alludes to what we were talking about earlier with Bobby, but Eric Flowers was brought in uh, really throughout training camp in a COVID year as a veteran leader. The Dolphins had four new starters on the offensive line last year. Uh, you know, they ended the season with five new offensive starters, um, including three rookies. So Eric Flowers and Ted Karras, who's now back in New England, it's it's crazy these moves. It's you know Eric Flowers is back in Washington. Ted Karras is back in New England. Um, but those two guys specifically were veteran pieces that were brought in to be the glue guys for the offensive line. These were guys with experience. You know, they had been at a few places. They had seen their career uh, trajectory go up, you know, as recently as, as Washington before Miami with, with Flowers' case. And they were brought in to mold the three rookies, Solomon Kinley, Austin Jackson, and Robert Hunt. And I think they did those jobs. Uh, to, to Flowers' credit, definitely in training camp. Uh, all three of those rookies were giving him credit for, um, and we saw it. We saw it in training camp that Eric Flowers would be 30 minutes past practice on the field with these three rookies, teaching them techniques. And this is when, you know, these are out 90 degree days in, in August, uh, Miami heat, heat index above 100 degrees. And here's Eric Flowers staying on the field to, you know, mentor these three rookies. So that's really what he's brought in for. Obviously his deal ended up being too much, uh, for what they wanted out of the production, but. Um, hopefully in, in Flowers' case that he's able to, to find his groove, which kind of got him that contract down here. Yeah. So just to be clear, I mean, in terms of performance, he was not good in 2020. No, I, I don't, and to, I think there's, there's different blame to go around. It, it was a totally new offensive line. Like what I said, four new starters, including Flowers. Obviously switching quarterbacks, not just that, but handedness with Ryan Fitzpatrick being a veteran right-handed, uh, quarterback to, a coming off a serious hip injury that let, you know, obviously he's him being a lefty. Um, and not just that, their rushing attack was not good. 29th in the league in yards per carry. So um, a lot of different factors, the, the quarterback situation, the new offensive line, but in Flowers, Flowers specific case. No, I, I think it's pretty fair to say that he was about average um, at best. And then of course there's Ryan Fitzpatrick and the extent to which he played well for the Dolphins over his two seasons with the team really is underrated to me. Top 10 in the NFL in ESPN's total QBR in each season. Just watching him and covering the team, was Fitzpatrick as good over his two years with the Dolphins as the QBR rankings suggest? Man, Ryan Fitzpatrick, I, I'll remember vividly my my uh, the first Ryan Fitzmagic experience that I got this past season. Uh, it was in Jacksonville. The Dolphins were seeking their first win. I think this was in week two, uh, week three on Thursday night football. And, you know, this is just a, a, a dude laying out for every single yard. In 2019, um, you know, we've mentioned the Dolphins running back woes. It's been here for a few years now. In 2019, Ryan Fitzpatrick led the team in rushing yards. This is a guy that's going to really command the locker room. He, he got the respect of um, a majority of the roster, um, and you see it on the field. I mean, he, he literally lays out his body to fight for those extra yards. Um, I mentioned that Jacksonville game, but one we always got to remember, and I think Washington fans will, will come to adore him, even just in his personality and in interviews and, and with the fan base. Uh, Las Vegas, Week 16, the Dolphins are fighting for their playoff lives. Obviously, two is already the starter. Tua gets benched in the fourth quarter, and here comes Ryan Fitzpatrick, uh, you know, leading this double-digit uh, comeback. I mean, a very vivid image of his face mask being pulled, and that's just who Fitz is. He, he's a he's a fighter, and he's going to will his team to battle. 
Um, I think the the final lasting impressions are obviously that Vegas game, but also in 2019, man, this Dolphins team was tanking for Tua. That was a big uh, mantra for for that team, a big slogan. slogan. Um, and they were getting embarrassed. I mean, 2019, they came out, they lost their first six games by an absurd amount of points. Uh, and Ryan Fitzpatrick led them to, to five wins in, in, you know, the, the back end of the season. And uh, they spoiled New England's hopes of, of getting a, a home uh, playoff uh, game. So that's the what Ryan Fitzpatrick does. I mean, I know he's 38. He, he's coming back for 17 years. Um Season, but he's a veteran. He's gonna get. He's gonna win the locker room over, and, and I think more importantly, the fan base and provide consistency with leadership and that willingness to want to win. Yeah, you mentioned the locker room. Dolphins tied in Mike Gesicki called Fitzpatrick the greatest teammate I've played with. What can you tell us about the extent to which Fitzpatrick was liked by his teammates? Yeah, I think in general, the the thing with Fitz and uh, you know, you mentioned Gesicki. Um, in his case, you know. Obviously, there's that off-field leadership, but he's good with tendencies. Uh, Mike Kosicki was a guy that, um, n- not incredible at creating uh, window space or in regards to, to arm space between separation of his defender, but you know what he is good at is getting up those 50-50 balls, and I think two receivers that benefited greatly, and we're going to see how they, they do now with two of full-time, I think they really benefited greatly. Devontae Parker and Mike Kosicki with Ryan Fitzpatrick, because Ryan Fitzpatrick knew if he could throw it up in a general area in a 50-50 um, ball type between the defender and obviously uh, Gesicki or Parker, that those two guys, you know, they just know the areas. There's that chemistry that they had with Fitzpatrick that he was good at making those uh, specific window 50-50 ball throws. And um, I think Washington's receivers, you know, once obviously they build some chemistry over throughout camp. Um, they'll see the off they'll see the off field leadership, but it's those tendencies and and not just that, but his willingness to tuck it away, and even at his age, I mean, this dude's about to turn, uh, you know, he's very nearing 40 uh, here in a couple of years, and he's not definitely not afraid to, to drop it and, uh, you know, show off those old man legs, and, you know, it's as crazy as his 17th NFL season, but he's definitely not afraid to tuck it and run. Yeah, and Washington could certainly use that. Uh, not a lot of mobility at quarterback for a lot of last season for the Washington football team. You mentioned Fitzpatrick's age. He's going into his age 39 season. Do you see him as a guy who will continue to play well for at least another season or two or maybe even three? Or, or do you think that a drastic drop-off could be coming? Yeah, I think the most important part, for, at least from Miami's perspective, is that when they drafted Tua number five overall, that obviously signaled to uh, Ryan Fitzpatrick that his end was coming with Miami. He was brought in here to mentor whoever the next quarterback would be it ended up being Tua. Um, in Ryan Fitzpatrick's case, he basically used half of last season as a tryout for his next team, who ended up being Washington. He basically had to put on film, show that he still had it. Uh, and you see, over the last two seasons, he threw 33 touchdowns, 20 interceptions. I mean, those are respectable numbers for teams that are looking for a quarterback and a veteran quarterback at that. So I think Fitz can kind of fight his way, too. Another short-term deal here, if he, he does a good job in Washington, and to be honest, you look at that division, the NFC East, uh, you know, what they went through last year. I I've, Personally, Al, I would not be surprised if Ryan Fitzpatrick led them to another uh, playoff appearance just because of how he's able to command a locker room and that leadership that he he just naturally attracts. I, I mean, it's not just with Miami. You, you talk about any of the teams that he's been with, the Bengals, the Bills specifically, the Jets. Uh, you talk to any scouts or, or former teammates on there, I mean, it's all – positive things like yeah they're going to say you're going to get those fits moments where he throws those picks but for the the most general um 
perspective that I've received from, again, scouts, former teammates, uh, you know, current teammates that were on the Dolphins. Uh, they're all positive vibes in regards to Fitz leading the locker room. Final question, and you mentioned Washington maybe making the postseason for a second straight season. Hasn't happened in a very long time in these parts. I think we all get why Miami went to Tua last season, but if the Dolphins never go to Tua last season and just stick with Fitzpatrick, do they make the playoffs? Man, I, I, you, we, well, like what I mentioned earlier, Al, you got that chemistry built in already with Mike Kosicki, um, with Devontae Parker. And I know Miami's uh, receivers, they suffered so many injuries in the running backs. They had Miles Gaskin, Savon Ahmed, both were injured. But if you stick with Fitz, and, and I know this is a hypothetical, I think they did, they, they do make a playoff, the playoffs. So specifically, you want to, I want to think back to the Denver game, um, which was the other game that Tua got benched. Tua got benched in the Denver game. He got benched in the, um, Las Vegas game, obviously, that, that Fitz led that comeback. I think if Fitz starts that game in Denver, uh, and they win that, I mean, they essentially missed the playoffs by one victory. If they, if that's a, if that's a win there, that they're, they're in. So. Uh, that's a great question. I'll go on record and say that I think they do make the playoff if Fitz uh, finished it out. But in Fitz's personal case, he did what he had to do. He had to put on tape and show that he still got it. He definitely did that, earned this contract uh, with Washington, and hopefully for his sake, uh, he can keep it chugging along here as he answers year 39. Yeah, I mean, I know one of the things people push back on with Fitzpatrick as well, he's never made the playoffs, and it's like, well, he would have made it last season if his team had just stuck with him. Josh, it's great to get your perspective on all these guys. Really appreciate your time, man. Thank you so much. Al, I think once those three guys get up there, specifically with Bobby and, and most specifically with Ryan Fitzpatrick, I think, again, the fan base, the, the media, he actually won our uh, PFWA Good Guy Award. Ryan Fitzpatrick did last year as the most friendly uh, player with the media. I think you guys are going to see it on the field. You guys are going to see it in the locker room. Fitz is a very likable guy, and um, you know we wish him the best. Uh, from the media perspective of him winning our Good Guy Award. Yeah, we're very excited to have him, for sure. All the best to you, Josh. Thank you so much. Appreciate the opportunity, Al. Take care. Is the Wizards 2020-2021 season going to end on Thursday night, or are we just getting going? Wizards host the Indiana Pacers at Capital One Arena on Thursday night at 8, with the winner getting the number 8 seed in the 2021 Eastern Conference playoffs and a first-round matchup with the one-seeded Philadelphia 76ers. This is, of course, game number two for the Wizards in the first-ever Eastern Conference play-in tournament. The Wizards losing at the Boston Celtics 118-100 in the 7-8 game on Tuesday night. The Pacers routed the Charlotte Hornets 144-117 on Tuesday night to advance in the play-in tournament. I don't know what to expect from the Wizards. The loss at the Celtics was very disappointing. The Wizards lost by 18 at a Celtics team, playing without its second best player in Jalen Brown, who underwent season-ending left wrist surgery on May 12th. The Wizards lost by 18 at a Celtics team that went just 5-10 and over its final 15 regular season games. Wizards, conversely, right, 17-6 and over their final 23 regular season games. The Wizards led by two at the half, 54-52. They then allowed the Celtics to begin the third quarter on a 22-4 run. And that was basically the game. The Wizards never trailed by fewer than eight points the rest of the game. The Wizards ended up losing the second half by 20-66-46. The damn Washington Wizards! Exactly. And the Wizards had no answer for Jason Tatum, who ended up scoring 50 points. We know that Bradley Beal is not Bradley Beal. He's doing what he can in dealing with this left hamstring strain, but you can tell 
that he's not himself. You know, Beal had maybe the best game of his career in one of the recent times that the Wizards faced postseason elimination. The 115-105 loss at the Boston Celtics in Eastern Conference Semis Game 7 in May 2017. Beal in that game, I'll never forget it, 5 of 10 on threes, 38 points, 4 rebounds, 2 assists versus 2 turnovers and two steals. I'd love to say that that Bradley Beal will be on display on Thursday night, and maybe he will be, but you can't be expecting that. Again, that left hamstring strain has been a difficult one for Beal. That has been a biatch to deal with. Beal has talked about that, and even if you haven't heard him talk about it or read about him talking about it, you just watch Beal. He doesn't look like himself. Russell Westbrook, right? He was not good on Tuesday night. 0 of 4 on 3, 6 of 14 on twos, did go eight of eight on free throws, did finish with 20 points, 14 rebounds, three steals, two blocks, but 13 of the 14 rebounds came in the first half. He had just five assists the entire game, all five of which came in the first half, and two of his three steals came in the first half. It was such an odd game. 13 rebounds for Westbrook in the first half, a career high for Westbrook in a half, But Westbrook in the second half, a second half again in which the Wizards got outscored by 20, just one rebound and zero assists versus one turnover. Westbrook for the game, five assists versus four turnovers, zero assists in the second half of the game to go with just the one rebound in the second half. Look, Thursday night to me is a big spot for Westbrook. Westbrook with the Oklahoma City Thunder, and yes, Kevin Durant as a teammate, advanced to at least the Western Conference Finals four times in six seasons, 2011, 2012, 2014, and 2016. And of course, Scott Brooks was the Thunder's head coach for the first three of those Western Conference Finals appearances, including the one for the Thunder team that made the 2012 NBA Finals. But Westbrook, since being without Durant on the Thunder, has had a hard time doing anything in NBA postseasons. Uh, Westbrook and his Thunder teams eliminated in the first rounds of three consecutive NBA playoffs 2017 through 2019. And then Westbrook was a part of the Houston Rockets team that lost in the second round of the 2020 NBA playoffs, during which Westbrook struggled mightily. Uh, Remember the playoffs in the bubble, Westbrook over eight games with the Rockets in the 2020 NBA playoffs, just eight of 33 on threes. Just 17 of 32 on free throws. And he had nearly as many assists as turnovers. 37 assists versus 30 turnovers. The recent postseason history for Russell Westbrook is not great. Nor was that performance in the loss at the Celtics in the 7-8 game on Tuesday night. What are we going to see from Russell Westbrook against the Pacers on Thursday night? There's also, of course, our pal Davis Bertans, who in the loss at the Celtics was wretched. Oh, of seven on threes, game worst plus minus rating of minus 23 in 32 minutes, 46 seconds off the bench. It has been a bad season for Bertans of him being re-signed by the Wiz to a five-year, $80 million contract this past November. His three-point shooting plummeted this past regular season, 37.3% off him having shot 42.9% on threes in the 2019-2020 regular season. Wizards could not buy a three in the loss at the Celtics on Tuesday night. Three of 21 on threes were the Wizards in the game. The good news for the Wizards is this, although I guess maybe you could frame this as bad news, but the Wizards went three and doe against the Pacers during the regular season. So you can't do the thing of, well, it's hard to beat a team four times in a season. And maybe it is, although, you know, that in, in the NFL, it gets said all the time, it's hard to beat a team three times in a season whenever a team is going to face a divisional rival in the NFL playoffs. And actually, the history is the opposite, that it's happened quite a bit that teams have beaten other teams three times in seasons. 
But for the Wizards this season, 3-0 and against the Pacers. Game number one, March 29th, a 132-124 Wizards win over the Pacers at Capital One Arena. No Bradley Beal in that game, did not play due to right hip contusion. No Davis Bertans in that game. That was during his absence due to right calf strain. The Wizards in the fourth quarter trailed at 116-110 with less than six minutes left, but then won the rest of the game 22-8. Wizards shot 55.6% from the field, including 10 and 19 on threes. Outscored the Pacers in the paint, 74-58. Out-rebounded the Pacers, 55-37. This was the game in which Westbrook broke Daryl Walker's franchise record for career regular season triple-doubles at 16. Uh, That seems so cute now, given what Westbrook ended up doing when it came to triple-doubles. But Westbrook in the game, huge performance, 35 points, 21 assists, versus four turnovers and 14 rebounds. Westbrook per synergy basketball created, assisted on, or scored 88 of the Wizards' 132 points in the game. Game number two for the Wizards against the Pacers this season. May 3rd, a 154-141 win over the Pacers at Capital One Arena. The Wizards did not trail after the first quarter. The Wizards were incredible offensively in this game. Again, the final score was 154-141. Wizards shot 61.2% from the field, including 9-22 on threes, 54-81 of on twos. Outscored the Pacers in the paint 96-60, had 30 fast break points to the Pacers four. The Wizards in this game scored 86 points over the second and third quarters. Westbrook was a monster in this game. 14 points, 24 assists versus six turnovers and 21 rebounds. He went five of eight from the field, all twos, four of four on free throws. Beal in the game, just one of five on threes, but 10 and 19 on twos, 26.6 assists versus five turnovers, five rebounds and two steals. And this is one of the big games for the Wizards bench during the 17 and six stretch. To conclude the regular season, five Wizards reserves in this game combining for 66 points. Daniel Gafford had a big game. Chandler Hutchison had a good game. Ish Smith had a good game as well. And then the third game for the Wizards against the Pacers this season, May 8th, a 133-132 overtime win at the Pacers. The Wizards in this game overcoming a 12-point fourth quarter deficit, ending the fourth quarter on a 24-12 run. Bradley Beal in the game, 50 points and Russell Westbrook in the game, tying Oscar Robertson for most career regular season triple-doubles in NBA history at 181. Westbrook finished with 33 points, 19 rebounds, and 15 assists to go with two blocks. Did commit seven turnovers, but did go three of seven on threes. What all of this means for Thursday night, I have no idea. But you can say the Wizards have done quite well against the Pacers so far this season, especially offensively speaking. Some of the Wizards' best offensive games this year came against the Pacers. Can the Wizards make it 4-0 against Indiana? Of course they can. But will they? Hard to say. And I'll go back to something that I said on Wednesday's podcast. I really think the outcome of Thursday night's game is huge. Because if the Wizards win then the surge to end the regular season gains more validity and credibility. And maybe just maybe the Wizards can make all of us feel so much better about the state of the franchise with what this season ends up being, you know, depending on what happens against the Sixers in the first round. If the Wizards, though, lose on Thursday night and don't even end up making it to the NBA playoffs, then I think you look at the surge to end the regular season as, well, that was nice, but really didn't mean a whole lot. And at that point, I think you really have to seriously consider, as I hope the Wizards do, blowing this all up. 
Okay? I've said this. Both Beal and Westbrook can opt out of their contracts after next season. The Wizards have got to make a decision this offseason, regardless of what happens on Thursday night, but especially if the Wizards lose on Thursday night, of you got to pick a direction here. You're either going to double down on the Beal and Westbrook scenario and try to get a third piece and really try to make something of what the Wizards currently have, or you're going to blow it up now and you're going to trade away Beal and maybe trade away Westbrook, although, uh, you know, he's not a very tradable player with that contract, but with the season he just had, maybe just maybe you can get something decent for him and you start the retooling now. But what you can't do, the worst thing the Wizards could do this offseason is to sort of just stay the course, not do anything and just kind of cross your fingers and close your eyes and hope that next season, golly gee, we can have the season we were supposed to have this season, i.e. getting, you know, the five seed, maybe the four seed in the East. It's not about trying to get a four seed in the Eastern Conference. You want to be a one or a two seed, all right? You want to be NBA championship caliber. Even if everything goes right for the Wizards as currently constructed, they are not NBA championship caliber. So you need at least another big piece, or you need to go in the opposite direction, which is go through the teardown get back some assets, especially some big-time assets for Beal, and start a rebuild. We'll see if the Wizards have the chops to pick an extreme direction and go in it. But that's the thing. you got to pick a lane, and you got to go full force in it. And if the Wizards lose on Thursday night, then the time to pick that lane comes a whole lot sooner than I think a lot of us thought it would, given how well the Wizards played down the stretch of the regular season. You tell me what you think. Hit me up on Twitter at Al Galdi. You can email me, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. The damn Washington Wizards. So as a lot of you listening know, I do another podcast, the Nats Chat podcast with Mark Zuckerman. We put out a new installment of that after every Nationals game. And one of the things Mark and I have been lamenting is how boring the Nationals 2021 season has been. How it's not just that the Nats haven't been doing so well, it's that the games really haven't been that exciting. There really hasn't been that much to sink your teeth into with this national season. You know, it's been a disappointing team, but it's been kind of a strange season, and it just hasn't been a lot like to really get into so far with the team. Well, Wednesday night, it felt like everything got made up for with all of the things that went down and what ended up being a Nationals win, a 4-3 victory at the Chicago Cubs in Game 3 of a four-game series. Just the fifth win in 15 games for the Nats who now are 17-22 and 22 on the year. The Nats in this game overcome Max Scherzer lasting for just five innings, overcome Brad Hand struggling in the bottom of the ninth, overcome Victor Robles leaving the game due to a right ankle injury, overcome Davey Martinez being ejected. I'm proud of the boys. Yes, Davey, you should be proud of the boys, and we're proud of you for what you did with that ejection. So let's start with that because it happened again regarding Trey Turner. Many of you listening likely remember what went down with Trey in Game 6 of the 2019 World Series, that epic 7-2 Nationals win at the Houston Astros. Trey Turner in that game very famously called out for running inside the first baseline in the top of the seventh inning. It was a rule that was misapplied. Trey Turner uh, gets called out in that spot. Davey Martinez comes out of the dugout to dispute the call, but because the decision was considered a judgment call, the play was not reviewable. Davey ends up erupting in the middle of the seventh inning, gets ejected by the crew chief, Gary Cedarstrom, in a pretty obvious venting of frustration from games three and five. That actually was the first time that a manager had been ejected in a World Series game since the Atlanta Braves' Bobby Cox in game six of the 1996 World Series. Anyway, fast forward to what went down Wednesday night at Wrigley Field. 
Trey Turner in the top of the seventh inning called out for running inside the first baseline and attempting to get to first base on a wild pitch on a swing and miss strike three to begin the top of the seventh inning. Turner was called out despite literally running straight down the first baseline and then the throw going behind Trey Turner. Like if you watch the game or at the very least if you watch this play, Trey Turner does nothing wrong. Like every logical fiber of your being will say Trey Turner did nothing wrong. Davey Martinez went nuts, came out to argue, was actually immediately ejected because he walked onto the field to play. That's a no-no. And then Davey, knowing that he had just been ejected, gets his money's worth. Remember, Davey was a bench coach for the Chicago Cubs when Joe Madden was the manager. Davey knows the environment there. So he says, I'm going to put on a show. And put on a show, Davey did. He rips the first base bag out of the ground, although it took a while for him to do that, okay, but he eventually did it. Then he spikes the bag, and then he kicks the bag. It was great to see. I love when Davey gets fired up like that, but it's a bunch of crap, this rule, and that this has happened now again to Trey Turner. I mean, at least this has happened in two wins, so it's not like these calls cost the Nationals, but understand what the rule is, and I I don't want to, like, bore you with the, you know, every word of the rule, but the rule, some people have said, like, with the rule, well, don't blame the umpires, blame the rule. No, actually, I'm going to blame the umpires because the rule is being misapplied. The rule isn't that the runner is out if he runs inside the first baseline. The rule is that the runner is out if he runs inside the first baseline and in doing so interferes with the fielder taking the throw at first base. That's essentially the rule. It's not so much where you're running, it's where you're running and if you interfere with the fielder taking the throw at first base. This was not a good throw to first base. Like I said, the throw went behind Trey Turner. And so why should the Cubs be rewarded for a bad throw in a spot like that? And yet that's exactly what ended up happening. It was a bunch of crap that this got called and good for Davey for throwing a fit I don't get why this is still a problem. And people say, well, the rules should be changed. I'm not sure that the rules should be changed. I think the application of the rule needs to be changed. I think the umpires need to do a better job of applying the rule. Anyway, we had that go down in the top of the seventh on Wednesday night. And what ended up being another good game for Trey Turner, two for five with two singles, an RBI and a stolen base. He, in the Nats, two-run third, had a one-out ribby single, despite having been down to the count at 1.02 and a stolen base. And Turner had a single in the top of the ninth inning. Speaking of guys who had good games on Wednesday night, Juan Soto. So this is one of the few games this season in which Trey Turner in the one spot, Juan Soto in the two spot, worked out beautifully. Juan Soto on Wednesday night, three for five with a homer and two singles, although he did have a boo-boo that we'll get to momentarily here. But the homer was something else. Uh, If you see, if you didn't watch the game because you were watching Caps Bruins, if you want to see nothing but one thing, the one thing should be this Soto homer from Wednesday night. Soto blasted a full count leadoff bomb, a moonshot in the top of the fifth on a ball that went off the right field scoreboard and went a projected 421 feet per stat cast. But maybe the best part about the homer is that Soto hit it while down on a knee. He ended up being down on his left knee in executing the swing and the ball soared into the Chicago night. That was some kind of shot. I mean, I've been preaching how Juan Soto needs to be elevating balls more, how Juan Soto isn't hitting for nearly enough power since coming off the 10-day injured list. And with one swing, you felt like, okay, Juan Soto is back home. Welcome home. Just like the prodigal son, he has returned. That was some kind of shot 
by Juan Soto. And Soto had two other hits in the game. Had a one-out single on a 1-2 pitch in the Nats' two-run third. Had a one-out single on an 0-2 pitch in the top of the seventh. So hopefully Juan Soto is truly getting going. The negative to Juan Soto's night was a bad caught stealing. It came with Andrew Stevenson on third and one out in the top of the ninth. The Nats sure could have used a tack-on run in that spot. Soto gets gunned down on an absolute bullet of a throw by Cubs catcher Wilson Contreras. And on the one hand, you could say, well, it was close. Yeah, but on the other hand, I say, well, he was out. You know, it doesn't do you any good if he's close. You need to be safe. And Juan Soto now on the season is one for four on stolen bases. It's not good. You know, Juan Soto has has said that he wants to be more of a base dealer. That's laudable. I can respect that. But that's not really your thing, man. To paraphrase Austin Powers, that's not your bag, baby. Okay, now if you do it well, great. But he hasn't done it well so far. He's run himself into some outs. That was the key out in the top of the ninth inning on Wednesday night. That's the kind of out that could have cost the Nets. Thankfully, did not. But, you know, I don't know why Juan Soto has to be Ricky Henderson here. Just be Juan Soto. That's good enough. You're a great hitter. We saw that on that towering home run in the top of the fifth inning. But Soto's had a good series so far and hopefully, finally, is getting going in the 2021 season. And then there was Victor Robles on Wednesday night. You know, Davey, I can't stand this thing with Robles batting ninth, but the idea behind it is that Robles acts as a second leadoff batter. And that did kind of sort of play out well on Wednesday night. Robles, number nine batter, goes two for three with a double and an RBI single. Had a one-out double in the Nats two-run third and a two-out full count RBI single in the top of the fourth, despite having been down in the count at one point, 0-2. Although, speaking of the lineup construction and and, uh, Robles batting ninth with the starting pitcher, in this case, Max Scherzer batting eighth, here's where that can hurt you, okay? In that aforementioned top of the fourth, Scherzer is the number eight batter, came up with a runner on second and one out and did what? Grounded out. Okay, so Robles comes up then with two outs and thankfully does come through with the full count Ribby single, but that's not the point. Max Scherzer came up in a big spot when he shouldn't have. That should have been at the very least Victor Robles, if not someone else. I still would like to see Victor Robles back to batting leadoff, but I just don't know that that's going to happen. But also for Robles in the game on Wednesday night, he got credited with an outfield assist. Bottom of the second, Eric Sogard got thrown out at home on a relay throw by shortstop Trey Turner from Robles on a two-out RBI single by Nico Horner. Good to see that. And Robles did get hurt in the game on Wednesday night. Suffered a right ankle injury. We don't know the status, but this could be a something and not a nothing. Robles came out of the game. Andrew Stevenson came into the game. Hopefully we find out more in the coming days. Hopefully it's, you know, nothing terrible. I mean, Robles did stay in the game for at least a little while, but um, he's getting some tests done and uh, you're just going to have to cross your fingers on this. That would be terrible if Robles goes down with something like that, an ankle injury. I give Stevenson credit, though. He comes into the game, and he essentially channels his inner Robles, makes a great defensive play, terrific diving forward backhanded catch in shallow center field on a one-out flyout by Chris Bryant with a runner on second, one out, and the Nats nursing a 4-2 lead in the bottom of the seventh. And then to further channel his inner Robles, Stevenson drew a leadoff hit by pitch in the top of the ninth, right? Robles is the king of being hit by pitches on the Nats. Uh, Stevenson getting hit by a pitch in the top of the ninth, but the defensive play really stood out. Really nice job by Stevenson in making that catch to rob Chris Bryant. So I mentioned Max Scherzer. He was the Nats starting pitcher on Wednesday night, and for a second consecutive start, Max only lasts for five innings. Max, in his previous outing, the 17-2 win at the Arizona Diamondbacks last Friday night, five scoreless innings on seven strikeouts, dealt with a sore throat. Davey got Max out of there relatively early. Well, 
on Wednesday night, Max Scherzer went just five innings again. Uh, he only allowed two runs, so it's not like he got tattooed, but he threw 100 pitches, 66 strikes versus 34 balls, issued four walks, which is uncharacteristic of Max. He came into the game having allowed just eight walks over eight starts on the season, four walks in just the game on Wednesday night, gave up five hits, all of which were singles, many of which were fluke slash bloop singles, and Max did have eight strikeouts, which drove up the pitch count, uh, though Max in the game did have a milestone strikeout past Baseball Hall of Famer Jim Bunning for 19th on MLB's all-time career regular season strikeouts list. But you look at some of the specifics with Max's outing. He allowed a run in the bottom of the second on a one-out single by David Bodie, a two-out five-pitch walk of Eric Sogard, and a two-out RBI single by Nico Horner, on which, as mentioned, Sogard got thrown out at home on a relay throw by Turner from Robles. Max gave up a run in the bottom of the fifth, and here's where just some of the variants of the batted ball stuff came to bite Max. So the bottom of the fifth began in terms of the damage with a one-out broken bat single by the Cubs starting pitcher, Jake Arrieta, on an 0-2 pitch. Okay, like that, that is the definition of uh, being subjected to the variance of the batted ball. You have the starting pitcher down 0-2, and he ends up somehow getting a single in a broken bat scenario like that. I mean, that, you know, that's just bad luck. Uh, then came a one-out single by Jock Peterson on a 1-2 pitch through the left side of the infield to beat the shift. So some more bad luck there. Then came a one-out seven-pitch walk of Chris Bryant, despite him having been down to the count of 1.12. Okay, that was bad for Max. But then came a one-out RBI bloop single by Ian Happ to center field. So, you know, Scherzer was getting nickel and dimed and paper cut it to death with some of the stuff that was happening with the Cubs. Max did, though, only end up giving up the one run in the inning, despite having the bases loaded and one out at this point, as uh, he struck out Wilson Contreras on seven pitches and then got David Bodie to fly out for the third out. So kind of a weird outing for Max Scherzer. Not bad, but certainly not great. And he only lasts five innings. And so the Nats have to lean on their bullpen again. And ultimately, three Nats relievers combined to allow one run in four innings. Now, the first two relievers were terrific. Kyle Finnegan tossed one into third scoreless innings, including a perfect bottom of the sixth that included three ground outs. Then Daniel Hudson came into the game and his terrific season continued. One and two thirds scoreless innings with two strikeouts as he struck out Wilson Contreras and PJ Higgins for the first and second outs in the bottom of the eighth. Hudson now with an ERA of 129 and a whip of 071 on the year. And then came the latest Brad Hand experience. Hand giving up a run in the bottom of the ninth and the damage could have been a lot worse. Uh, Hand struggled. He struggled for a fourth time in five appearances. So we're kind of back now to worrying about Brad Hand. Gave up a one-out solo homer to Javier Baez and gave up a two-out single to Chris Bryant. Although, interestingly, Hand did strike out the other three batters he faced, Nico Horner, Jock Peterson, and pinch hitter Matt Duffy. But Hand needed to throw 25 pitches in the inning, including eight pitches apiece to Peterson, whom Hand got behind 3-1 and Duffy. So far from a dominant outing for Hand, even though, again, he did record the three strikeouts, but gave up the one-out solo homer to Javier Baez. That cut the Nets' lead from 4-2 to 4-3, and then you had to hold on tight for the rest of that ninth inning if you're a Nats fan, but Hand does come through. The Nats come through, and they get the win. Game four at the Cubs, 2-20 on Thursday afternoon. Nats no longer have to worry about being swept, can actually now forge a two-game split in the series. The pitching matchup, Joe Ross, versus Trevor Williams. Williams has struggled this year, 627 ERA over eight starts. I would say that Joe Ross is potentially pitching for a spot in the rotation 
given that Eric Fetty has been better and that Steven Strasburg is almost certainly about to be activated from the 10-day injured list. But we had a COVID-19 situation arise for the Nationals on Wednesday. The Nats on Wednesday placed Eric Fetty and Tanner Rainey on the COVID-19 injured list due to one of them having tested positive for COVID-19 and the other having been deemed a close contact. More on that in a moment. The corresponding roster moves were the Nats recalling Paolo Espino and Kyle McGowan from AAA Rochester. But Davey Martinez in a pregame Zoom press conference on Wednesday said that the player who tested positive for COVID-19 had been vaccinated and was doing fine, but also that the close contact player had not yet been vaccinated. So we knew one guy had been vaccinated, one guy had not been. So which was which we did not know until Max Scherzer spoke after the game. Max Scherzer, during his post-game Zoom press conference, let it be known that Eric Fetty had been vaccinated and actually went off a bit, basically saying that MLB's got to relax its protocols for guys who've been vaccinated. I think Max is right. Now, the protocols for a vaccinated player to return from a COVID-19 cause absence are easier than the protocols for a non-vaccinated player to return from a COVID-19 caused absence. But Max's point is, Fetty's been vaccinated. He's not symptomatic. He's not really at risk of spreading the virus. So he shouldn't have to miss any time. And I think Max Scherz is right about that. Um, that. You know, especially like if you really want people to get vaccinated, you've got to reward them for being vaccinated. And I don't think that MLB is doing enough of that with the protocols that are, yes, relaxed, but still are fairly stringent here. Like Fetty is going to miss some time. How much time, we don't know. Hopefully it's not a lot of time but he's going to miss some time. But Max Scherzer, in going on this rant, did let it be known that Fetty had been vaccinated. And so you do the quick deduction, and we now know that Tanner Rainey has not been vaccinated. So if I'm Tanner Rainey, I'm turning off all of my social media because I'm about to get bombarded with all kinds of messaging from all kinds of people in our country right now. So I I got a kick out of that with Scherzer doing that. I would not be surprised, though, if this was strategic on Max Scherzer's part, because he does want his teammates to get vaccinated. Remember, Max is a very vocal player. He's very involved with the Major League Baseball Players Association. And look, wherever you stand on vaccines, okay, you, you know that I got mine and uh, I was I was in a rough spot for about 12 hours, but I'm glad that I got it. The data, the science very much supports people getting vaccinated. I'm not going to do some preachy thing here of here's why you need to get vaccinated, okay? I think the science and the data are pretty clear on vaccines working and vaccines being safe. But to put aside your beliefs on vaccines, you know, your politics, to whatever extent politics impact how you view vaccines, understand that in Major League Baseball this year, it is a competitive advantage to be vaccinated because the COVID-19 protocols for your team are lessened if you're vaccinated. And if a team reaches an 85% vaccination rate for what's called the team's tier one personnel, the team as a whole can relax on its COVID-19 protocols. The Nats, interestingly, still have not gotten to 85%. It looked a few weeks ago like that might be coming soon. That still has not happened. Davey Martinez let that be known during his pregame Zoom press conference. So my point here is, is I would not be surprised if Max Scherzer purposely said after the game that Eric Fetty had been vaccinated so that people could figure out that Tanner Rainey had not been vaccinated so that maybe there's more pressure now on Rainey to get vaccinated so that the Nationals do end up reaching the 85% threshold. Now, you could say that's not right that Max did that, that Max has kind of put the spotlight now on Rainey, but I would not be stunned if that's what happened there. I could see Max doing that. 
Uh, Max is not a dummy. Max knows what he's doing when he talks about Eric Fetty having been vaccinated. And I think Max is also right. Like I said, in if you've been vaccinated and you're not symptomatic and you're not at risk of spreading the virus, what are we doing here in not allowing Eric Fetty to pitch? But from a standpoint of where we're at with the rotation, you know, there's that saying in sports of like these things will take care of themselves. It kind of feels like that's happening here, right? That the Nats don't have to make a decision on Joe Ross versus Eric Fetty for now, because at least for now, Eric Fetty is not available due to yet another COVID-19 situation arising for the Nationals. I can't wait until we're through with all this COVID-19 stuff. Unfortunately, we're not. Not just yet. Another loss for the Orioles on Wednesday night. 9-7 the final to the Tampa Bay Rays at Oriole Park at Camden Yards. 10th loss in 13 games for the O's, who now are 17-25 and on the season. So like the Nationals, the Orioles were starting their ace on Wednesday night. And like the Nats' ace, the Orioles' ace wasn't quite the ace that we're used to seeing. John Means was the Orioles' starting pitcher in this loss to the Rays. And John Means had at best his second worst start of the season. Uh, we're not used to this from Means. He's been great. He wasn't great on Wednesday night, although there's a little more to it than that. He ends up giving up four runs in six into third innings on six hits, which were two homers, a double, and three singles. Issued a walk, did have six strikeouts, did throw 63 of his 93 pitches for strikes. And for a while, it looked like a good outing for Means. You know, he was handed a 5 nothing lead after two innings. I mean, the Orioles were in a great spot in this game, up 5 nothing after two, Means on the mound. John Means actually began the outing with four scoreless innings, but he allowed three runs in the top of the fifth on a one-out seven-pitch walk of Mike Zanino, and then back-to-back two-out homers. These were killers. Two-run, full-count homer by Mike Brasso, and a solo homer by Randy Arozarena on a 1-2 pitch, and Means then gave up a two-out single to Manuel Margot. Means also was charged with a run in the top of the seventh off allowing a one-out double to the final battery faced Kevin Kiermeyer, and that inherited runner ended up scoring as the Orioles' bullpen has been horrendous so far in this series. In the loss on Wednesday night, four Orioles relievers combined to allow five runs in two and two-thirds innings. In the 13-6 loss to the Rays on Tuesday night, four Orioles relievers combined to allow seven runs in seven and a third innings. But John Means came into games on Wednesday, number two in the majors in wins above replacement per baseball reference for pitchers. A 2.6 B-war for Means coming into games on Wednesday. Did not end up pitching to that level on Wednesday night. Also for the Orioles in this loss was Trey Mancini going nuclear. Mancini starting DH, number three batter, four hits and five RBI. He had a two-out first pitch solo homer in the bottom of the first. Had a two-out three-run double in the Orioles' four-run second. Had a leadoff homer in the bottom of the fifth. Had a two-out single in the bottom of the ninth. Trey Mancini now is having himself a really good season. For a while, the slash line wasn't that good. The slash line now is plenty good. Trey Mancini over 178 plate appearances on the year. Batting average of 273. On base percentage of 337, slugging percentage of 503. He's got his OPS all the way up to 840. And get this with Trey Mancini. He leads the majors now in runs batted in with 38. Yes, Trey Mancini is number one in baseball in runs batted in with 38. No, I'm not a big RBI guy, but 
It's not like runs batted in mean nothing. And it is pretty cool, especially for a guy who missed all of last season due to freaking colon cancer, that Trey Mancini is number one in the majors with 38 RBI. And more significantly, Trey Mancini, like I said, has an 840 OPS now on the year. He is legitimately having a really nice offensive season. What a job, though, by Mancini in this game on Wednesday night. One other Orioles item to make mention of, and that is that Chris Davis's season is over. Orioles Executive Vice President and General Manager Mike Elias on Wednesday announcing that Davis has undergone arthroscopic hip surgery and is done for the season. So this is something to add to the Chris Davis file because I had been wondering, I know a lot of people had been wondering, what the heck really truly is going on here with Chris Davis? He very interestingly and conveniently suffered a strained lower back in the Orioles' very first exhibition game of the 2021 Grapefruit League season, and then was like, never heard from again. Didn't play again. The Orioles put Davis on the 60-day injured list on March 26th with the lower back strain. Manager Brandon Hyde got asked on April 25th, uh, how is Chris Davis doing? And Hyde just said, just rehabbing. When asked where, Hyde said that he wasn't sure. I mean, this whole thing reeked of the Orioles having told Davis, look, we don't want to play you. We don't really even want you around. We're just going to concoct this phony back injury, or we're going to exaggerate this existing back injury and just put you on the 60-day IL. Uh, I, I, I thought that was a very reasonable question to be asking of how legit is this Chris Davis health situation. Well, it would appear if the hip was connected to the back, then the injury situation, in fact, was legitimate, right? I mean, and it's very possible, right, that the hip surgery has to do with the lower back strain. So apparently he was really hurt, and it just kind of worked out, uh, certainly from an Orioles perspective, because I don't think Mike Elias and Brandon Hyde are interested in playing Chris Davis at this point. Uh, neither Elias nor Hyde had anything to do with Chris Davis getting that contract in January 2016. What is one of the worst contracts, maybe the worst contract in sports history, seven years, $161 million. You know, Davis was okay first two seasons over the course of that deal, 2016-2017. But Davis has been all-time putrid over the last three seasons, 2018 through 2020. Chris Davis's war for baseball reference over the previous three years, 18 through 20, minus 5.1. I mean, think about that. A minus 5.1 B war for Chris Davis over his previous three seasons. And then for him to be buried as he was so early in the exhibition season. Again, first game he gets hurt. And then they just put him on a 60 day IL and hide when he gets asked about Davis, has no idea what's going on with Davis. You know, the whole thing was, was very fishy. But apparently there was something going on from a health standpoint with Chris Davis. You can't deny that now. The guy just underwent arthroscopic hip surgery. And so now uh, that will do it for the penultimate season of the Chris Davis debacle of a contract. One more season to go. What will be Chris Davis's age 36 season? And the only question really that remains is, will the Orioles pull a Los Angeles Angels and DFA Chris Davis, the way the Angels DFA'd Albert Pujols this season in the final season of his flop of a contract? Or do the O's continue to have Chris Davis on the team, even though the team has no interest in playing Davis? And I don't think any Orioles fan has any interest. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. 
Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Interesting seeing Davis play anymore. Time will tell. But I do hope he does well coming off the surgery. I mean, you know, you don't want anyone to suffer physically. And look, with Chris Davis, I don't know that he's like a bad guy. There's been some stuff that's come up here and there, but he doesn't seem to be a bad dude. This is just a contract that has been a complete debacle. O's try to avoid a three-game sweep to the Rays on Thursday afternoon, a 12:35 first pitch. Dean Kramer versus Rich Hill, who, yes, is still in the majors. Rich Hill in his age 41 season. All right, guys, look, no one's perfect. Even the best baseball players strike out with the bases loaded. The best golfers sometimes three-putt with the tournament on the line. So if you feel like you come up short in the bedroom sometimes, it's perfectly okay. But if it's bothering you, there are options. Go to GetRoman.com slash AlGaldi now. With Roman, you can get a free online evaluation and ongoing care for ED, all from the comfort and privacy of your home. A U.S. licensed healthcare professional will work with you to find the best treatment plan. If medication is appropriate, it ships to you free with two-day shipping. The whole process is straightforward and discreet. Getting started is simple. Just go to GetRoman.com slash AlGaldi and complete an online visit. Take care of your ED without leaving home. Complete an online visit today to connect with a doctor and take care of it. Go to GetRoman.com slash AlGaldi now to get $15 off your first month. Look, there's a straightforward way to take care of your ED. GetRoman.com slash AlGaldi. Get started now to save $15 on your first month of treatment. All right, that will do it for you and me for now. Keep the feedback coming. You can tweet me at AlGaldi. You can email me, the AlGaldi podcast at yahoo.com. Special guest on Friday's installment of the Al Galdi podcast. Spread the word. Sam Monson, lead NFL analyst for Pro Football Focus, back on the pod. One of the smartest guys out there when it comes to talking NFL, and he is a big fan of what the Washington football team has done this offseason. We're going to talk all about that. Also on Friday's show, the Wizards. Is their season over or does it continue or react to whatever happens in their game against the Indiana Pacers at Capital One Arena on Thursday night in the play-in tournament. I'll have more for you on the Caps with Game 4 at the Boston Bruins on Friday night. Caps now down in the series 2-1. Are we looking at a third consecutive season in which the Caps are eliminated in the first round of the Stanley Cup playoffs? And I'll talk Nationals and Orioles as well with both teams playing on Thursday afternoon. Game 4 for the Nats at the Chicago Cubs. O's trying to avoid a three-game sweep to the Tampa Bay Rays at Oriole Park at Camden Yards. Hey, maybe we'll have another no-hitter. Corey Kluber, no-hitter in the New York Yankees 2-0 win at the Texas Rangers on Wednesday night. Second consecutive night on which we have a no-hitter. The sixth no-hitter already this season. The record for most no-hitters in any season ever is eight in 1884. 
The modern record for most no-hitters in a season is seven, last done in the 2015 season. We're already at six, and we're only through May 19th. Have a great rest of your Thursday. I'll talk to you on Friday. Spring is in the air at Littleton Coin Company, and we want to help you brighten your collection. Visit us at littletoncoin.com all month long to enjoy 15% off your purchase. With a wide selection of coins, paper money, supplies, and more, Littleton Coin Company has something for every collector's taste. Use promo code SPRING at littletoncoin.com for 15% off your purchase all month long. Restrictions apply. Littleton Coin Company. Serving collectors since 1945. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.